Hello, hello, and welcome back to AA Opera Podcast, episode 83. What? what? <laughs> We're just saying we need more sound effects. Yeah, we like, really celebrate do. Celebrate with sound effects. <laughs> uh, but Abby, how, how has your week been? It's been fine. Still obsessed with the news. Um... I started teaching adults this week, which was so refreshing. Oh, and I also discovered this thing on Duolingo where you, where you can do like a classroom. Oh, that's new. So then I sent them homework through Duolingo. You see, they're improving. Like to practice letters and stuff. It was great. And apparently you can also on Duolingo, you can do events and you can make money off of that. And then you can also do it over Drops, which we actually have a link to. Which we do have a link to. <laughs> so. Yeah. So check out our description because they're both really good. Because I started using Drops again for learning Cyrillic. Oh. Because I want to not depend on Russian IPA rather than just use the actual Russian. Okay. That's cool. And it's great. It reminds you what the letters are all the time, and I've done it. Oh my god! So, in dual, so I'm doing both of them. I'm like switching between the two constantly. On Duolingo, there's like a March thing. Like you have to get a thousand XPs for yeah. March. Yeah. I went back like two days ago. <laughs> We're already at six hundred. I'm almost at the a thousand. <laughs> what? You are awesome at that. Because I get, I keep getting the passive-aggressive green bird notification come up on my phone, which I actually, oh. you know, I actually quite like. Because um, I'm just trying, I'm like flitting between French and German and Italian, and I'm just kind of keeping those things ticking over since leaving um, uh, music college. But it's, uh, I'm, I'm just rubbish with the XP. I'm just, I'm just rubbish with it. Like, because I, I usually do it on the tube when I'm traveling. And then yeah. if the internet cuts out, which it does sort of after Westminster and it hasn't pre-saved the thing, then I can't do any more. So I usually only do like one lesson if I'm lucky. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so I have to confess, I have paid for drops. Okay, that's fine. Which means... Yeah, which means I can do it unlimitedly, because usually Drops will give you, unlike Duolingo, it gives you a amount of time of what you need to do every day. Yeah. So it's like, here's a 10-minute timer, do your languages. or But you can pick, like, 5, 10, 15. And then it will restart the timer for you once you've completed your 10. But if you download it and pay for it, you have all those options. Otherwise, it's just one minute a day, I think. Uh, but when you pay for it, you don't have to use internet for it. Uh, It'll just be on your phone. Well, that's good. So you can play it constantly. Yeah. It's really I good. I mean, that that wasn't intentional as a little um, push for, for drops there, but do check it out. Um, we'll put a link in our description. Really do check it out. Yeah. But how's your week been? Yeah, it, it's been okay. Um, I am... Um, currently awaiting the arrival of of mother hen uh, and her partner so we've got we've got visitors uh this week but it'll be nice to to see them um uh but yeah i've got kids in for exams um i've been uh 
Do you know what I've been doing with singing this week? Is that I went back and I picked up arias that I was doing when I was at Ram. And that was just quite interesting and quite enjoyable to uh, to sing uh, things that I, I sung years ago. And I'm, I'm pleased to report that there's definitely things that I found just so difficult two years ago. And yeah. now it just, it just kind of came out yesterday. So that made me feel really good. <laughs> oh, I love doing that. Oh my God, it's the best feeling in the world. You're like, oh my God, I've come such a long, long way. way. <laughs> Yeah. So, so look at all my improvement. Yeah. Um, so that's good, and that's that's pretty much it. You know, same old, same old. Uh, but should we crack on with this week's guest? We should crack on with this week's guest. So this week we have John. He is everywhere now, like blowing up. Pay attention. Keep focused. He is a bass baritone and a director. So you can see him both on and off stage, but we'll let him tell you a bit more about himself. Enjoy the episode, guys. Welcome, John. This is so exciting. We're really glad to have you here on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. And, and uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, yes, I'm John Savornin. I'm a, uh, an opera singer and a director. And I'm also the artistic director of uh, Charles Court Opera. Fantastic. Really good to have you with us, John. Um, can you tell us what your first experience of opera was? So my first experience of opera probably wasn't opera at all. And it was, well, it, it was opera because uh, operetta is still opera. Uh, it will have been a Gilbert and Sullivan opera because my um, my parents were very involved in in amateur theatre while I was growing up and I remember sitting at the back of an auditorium for a production that my mum was uh, directing it was actually of uh, a piece called Utopia Limited which Scottish Opera are currently performing about I think they're about to perform it at the Hackney Empire actually Um, and uh, the I was she brought me along more or less to cope with childminding duties I think I was probably about four years old and I sat at the back (laughs) coloring next to her desk at the back of the stalls and um, and you know got up and pointed out that something on the set was looked a bit weird and and uh, some flowers were were obviously falling off or something like that and uh, she said oh shut up and sit down and then uh, and then and then about half an hour later she said actually um uh, those uh, those flowers do need moving and <laughs> got them to sort it out. <laughs> so I was very uh, uh, very very much caught the theatre bug very very early on, um, and that's all I remember about it. Actually, that was my that's all I remember of that first experience. I, I, I think I don't remember anything about the music, but I knew that uh, theatre at least was something that I was very um, uh, very very caught by. Let's say I decided it was definitely something that that I had an interest in. Say you're a theater kid without saying you're a theater kid, <laughs> with, like, with like pointing out something on the stage for someone. By the way, you did that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so we cannot have you on this podcast without talking about GNS Gilbert and Sullivan for people who are not aware of what that stands for, and also your incredible performance in Eno's production of HMS Pinafore and you as Captain Cochran. Where did the love then for JNS start? Was it there when you were four or did it keep growing 
it wasn't through design that I I constantly sort it out as as a as a repertoire necessarily. It was just very much part of my childhood that you know aside from my parents being part of of um, uh, amateur societies around the north of England and uh, my uh, my sister was was very involved in those as well and I found myself gradually being coerced into being an extra in the, in the chorus or whatever for some of those there was also um a, a Gilbert and Sullivan festival starting which still runs and is still happily uh, in existence in, in both Buxton and Harrogate and um I, I they started running a youth production over the summers and you know that they were very much for for any any age i think it was about 8 years old upwards to about 18 and they they did the first one of those they did was a was a was a production of trial by jury um and i'd gone along and auditioned for that and and was cast as as the judge and i think it was more that the sense of kind of shared enthusiasm community uh and and just being a lot around like-minded passionate people who who loved being part of creating something and it all happened so quickly you know it was it was it, it was kind of kind of crazy casting on a saturday morning uh at nine o'clock in the morning where at an open audition where everyone's in the room and the and the director just sees everybody for two minutes each or whatever and then everybody gets sent off for lunch it was like pre-x factor x factor and then <laughs> and then she'd come back and she'd you know read out the cast list with significant pauses in between each of the characters and the, and the cast name and that sort of thing and uh and you know it, it and then a week later we were on the stage in buxton opera house doing a show and and that was kind of thrilling and it, it felt a bit like you know, boot camp in a way. You know, going off and, and and getting to stay somewhere else and 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 make new friends and 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 so on. And so, you know, that was really what fed the 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 desire to carry on going to do that that project every year while I was a child. And and with it, I got to know the Gilbert and Sullivan shows, and and they've kind of always stayed with me. That they, they've become part of that nursery rhyme part of your brain where it's just. The nostalgia is so strong, apart from anything else. There's always something going on in in those pieces, and I think that often they get a bit of a they get a bit of a bad rep, but primarily from from places where where from people who haven't necessarily explored them particularly or haven't worked on them. I think if you've ever worked on one uh, one of their operas, you 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 start to understand what the fuss is about to a certain degree, um, and they're quite hard to to pull off as performers it's quite an exposing experience the the vocally it's quite angular a lot of the time and a bit tricky um to 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 sing well and and that's coupled with spoken text which is actual situational comedy and that's not very easy to pull off either and i think that those and often you're required to dance as well or or do something <laughs> resembling dancing in you know opera singer dancing so it's um, <laughs> it's it's that they're rewarding they're rewarding to to work on and they're rewarding to perform especially when it clearly works and the audience is receptive to what you've to what to what's being done um and um i'm looking forward to doing some more yeah yeah um well speaking about the the people who haven't necessarily been 
exposed to much GNS. Um, can you talk a little bit about Gilbert and Sullivan and what you should expect from their operas and how their operettas came about? Sure. I mean, they were they were the they were kind of the most prolific British uh, writing duo in that in that uh, in that era in that Victorian period. And uh, they collaborated on about um, 13, 14 operas and starting with, with Trial by Jury, which was, uh, it was basically a curtain raiser for a different uh, comic opera. Uh, and this was a time when, when comic opera or, 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 or operetta was uh, absolutely the musical theatre of the time. So... They were a little bit like they were a little bit like Andrew Lloyd Webber or Stephen Schwartz or somebody like that now, um, uh, writing lots of different shows that were being constantly revisited and constantly performed, and they were so successful to the point that you know uh, uh, the the guy who was who was commissioning from them called Doily Cart Richard Doily Cart he made a, an opera company pretty much for the sole purpose of performing their works. And he built the Savoy Theatre pretty much for the sole purpose of, of performing their works originally. So the first opera that even appeared there was Iolanthe, which is one of their their operas. And it was one of the first operas to be performed with um, electric lighting. And they went to town on that and had oh, wow. and had lights on the headdresses of the fairies, the the, the chorus and things like that. Kind of kind of pushed them. Sounds so dangerous. In the <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but so but so kind of pioneering as as a as a thing. And and Gilbert also, though he wrote these and he you know he'd written lots of other stuff beforehand, like pantomimes and burlesques and stuff like that, which you can see in a lot of the operas actually there's a lot of kind of bawdy humour that we kind of washes over our heads a bit now. But uh, he also directed them, and that was quite unusual as well for the time. It was often left up to the stage manager or, and, and what have you. So so there were quite a lot of things born out of their, uh, their work. Uh, they're a great introduction to opera, if anybody is, is curious about it, I would say. Um, as you mentioned, GNS Productions are known for slapstick comedy, and you seem to have it down. You were fantastic at ENO. We really couldn't stop laughing. It was fantastic. Especially the dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, the tap dancing. <gasps> yeah, that was fun to do, fun to rehearse. Um, any tips for um, mastering comedy on stage? Oh, I don't know that I'm necessarily an expert on this at all. I mean, I think that it's just something to trial and error to a certain degree, and working with really good directors to to get to get to uh, to get it to work. But I mean, I think that the main thing to start with with comedy is to try not to think of it as comedy. Um, in clearly, there's a there's a there's a lightness around it, and and especially with that kind of material, there is just that very slight sense of heightened uh, delivery and 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 sort of archness that often comes with with um with musical theater actually there's there's a sort of similarity there but fundamentally situational comedies especially those sorts of pieces like like the the GNS operas they really are that and it's it's the it's getting the audience to believe in the characters enough that 
helps them see the humour in the situation that they're in or see the kind of extra subtext that the writer is is putting on the scene that you don't need to play um uh, and that is i mean obviously you played subtext within the within the, the the context of character of course but i mean the sort of overarching kind of commentary that the writer might be putting on the table might not be your job to communicate and i think if you can if you can make sure that the characters are believable and that the text that the that the, the, the comedy is played straight in a sense then you're on to a winner with with how to to get the audience engaged with it i once uh, worked with um a great director who put the cast in a workshop situation. We we did a workshop on on, on how to tackle um, material like this, and and she made a very interesting point to this great exercise where everybody had to um, everybody had to do uh, the, exactly the same thing. We had to all run onto the stage, um, put our backs up against the wall. Uh, look left, look right, run to the middle, look off stage right, run to the front. Imagine you're seeing something in distance and it gives you a bit of hope and then be disappointed. And we we all rehearsed this for about an hour, you know, just everybody together getting it absolutely perfect. So all we were doing was exactly the same physically, emotionally, all of it. And then she sent three people out of the room and said to those of us that remained, the first person that comes in is a bank robber. And the person came in and did the scene. It felt different as an audience. The next person was Juliet looking for her Romeo. It suddenly felt like we a different again. And the last person just desperately needed to go to the loo. And it was funny. The point of that is to say that there's, there's often a lot else going on with comic material. You don't need to resort to being, uh, to, to behaving a certain way to try and get the humour to work. You, you can trust that the material will, will ultimately deliver. It reminds me of those um, when you're in drama class and they say, okay, one person's going to start a picture and everyone's going to join in and do something else to like create this picture. So then you have like the guy coming to the finishing line. And then everyone joins in. It's like a guy holding his leg, another person who's just like beat him and stuff like that. Exactly right. But I would love to ask you, do you have a favourite Gilbert and Sullivan show? If you had to pick your favourite, do you have one? A lot of people would pick The Omen of the Guard because it's musically so... Um, so close to sort of grand opera in its in its style, the story is very well constructed. The comedy is very well constructed, and it's also the only one that's a tragedy, and uh, that that in itself, you know, I think is quite appealing. I, I also think that there's um, there's there's clearly something very successful about the Mikado in terms of its comic writing as well. It's an extremely strong situational comedy again. I think my absolute favourite might be Princess Ida, which is very seldom performed. Uh, it's the only one in three acts as, uh, as well, not that that's the reason. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's quite interesting. It's, a, it's a quite a, a feminist story, actually, about uh, a very strong uh, central character, the princess. And um, uh, musically, it's really charming, and uh, yeah, I, 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 anyone who doesn't know it, I'd encourage them to go and, and take a listen because it's uh, um, 
it's got like like often happens with Sullivan, he pastiches a lot of other other, other composers, Verdi, Puccini, what what have you, and he's got a few nice Handelian touches in Princess Ida as well, um, and uh, it's just a really interesting fantasy story, uh, uh, which which um, yeah should be performed more often. Somebody somebody listen and put it on. <laughs> we'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, can you tell us about your close relationship with? Opera Holland Park. Yes, um, I worked with Holland. Have worked with Opera Holland Park since their production of mm-hmm. Flight, um, which ooh, was that two thousand fifteen, maybe. And I was also, uh, I also created a um, uh, one of their outreach projects for their Inspire program, which was actually um, a, a Pirates of Penzance project that went into schools and to um, care homes, and. Uh, uh, since then, I've, I've returned to working with them in in various roles uh, over over the years, uh, Colline and um, Leporello and 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 so on. And uh, we've with my own with with Charles Scott Opera, we've recently uh, uh, built a collaboration with them to present uh, a, a new Gilbert and Sullivan each uh, summer. We're going to do our second one this uh, coming summer. And uh, yeah, it's a really we we the the Pirates of Penzance that we performed last year was really uh, successful. Everybody uh, really enjoyed working on it, as well as you know the audience re- received it extremely well. And um, you know Holland Park is one of those companies where everybody feels like they're part of a of a family, and and you know that that often can feel superficial in a, in a kind of company context because everybody's moving on to the next job and so on and. Uh, in this case, James Clutton, who's the director of opera there, he he really works hard to make sure that everybody does really feel that sense of value, right from the 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 lead role in in an opera to to the to whoever working backstage, the dresses and so on. Everybody feels like they have a real uh, a real value to him personally and to the company around them, and I think. Uh, that's why people return to work there so often. Uh, it, it's it's just a very happy place to be. It does really present that atmosphere. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, I, it you really sense that everybody loves the work that they're collectively creating. That's really good to hear. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, we'd love to hear more about the production process of the Bear, which was screened by Opera Holland Park in November. How did you find performing um so and recording um an opera for the screen and how did it differ from live performance yes recording the bear was actually one of those claire and and richard who were the other two singers on it it both would would say the same thing it was one of those those really uh happy weeks that was you know we were coming out of that really tricky winter lockdown that was was hard for everybody uh for lots of reasons apart from the obvious pandemic reasons but also just from personal mental health level it, it for for everyone i think it was a, it was a struggle and i think there was this this kind of release from that for for a week where we all got to go and and, and create something in this astonishing house uh that's oddly placed smack in the middle of you know lewisham and is um uh, is this sort of haven from everything it was a quick process mainly because of covid so we came together for uh only a few days really to rehearse uh the thing in in the house and and 
it, when it came to actually re recording it, um, the difference was that we we spent quite because all of the singing was recorded live as well. We spent time in a sense doing camera rehearsals where we would work everything out about what we were going to do, on, both you know on on camera as it were as performers, but also they would really. Uh, work hard on on getting the timing of their camera shots and the movement of the cameras uh, planned out as we were as we were working so that when it was when it was decided it was time to go for a take um we might only need to to take two or three times uh just in order to be able to sing at the other end of the day and not having you know worked on uh, the the bear for uh, for you know the equivalent of about 10 times of doing the opera in one day and um that was so that was a, a really interesting way of uh, of working i mean it's not too dissimilar from working in a rehearsal room but the stakes are high because immediately you've rehearsed that it's going on camera and it's going to possibly be the take that gets used so you've working working quickly and being very much on the ball was was important there was one scene that was filmed uh where we went outside the house which was the only scene where the the uh, music was recorded uh in advance of filming the scene still in the same room but we re recorded it before actually filming the external and played the music through speakers uh outside so that then we could we could lip sync to to what it was um but otherwise it was uh it was all you know every, everything that's on 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 record there was was created in the room at that moment and there's a, there's a fantastic photograph actually of the three of us uh in between takes just sat on a bed in one of the rooms and and um uh claire who was playing the 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 the, the leading lady she was uh pregnant at the time and um you know you could really see that she was and we embraced that as part of the of, of the, the the story um and uh, but you could see how utterly happy she is just perched up there on the bed and and it was a real snapshot of the kind of 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 um pleasure and reminder of what we love about working on theater in general working on 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 a, on a project as as a, as a group of people we're reminded about how much that is valuable uh and and is a process I think we'd all love to repeat if we could uh it was uh, a real a real joy it sounds amazing yeah it was great really great fun. Nice. I feel like there needs to be more opera like that because it's also then easier accessed by the wider audience yeah I mean I and I think a lot of opera companies are doing that now they're they're taking they're they're aware that a digital output is important there's a concern that the audience may not actually come to the theater itself but i think the reality is that it's having it's having having the opposite effect if people have watched something they seem more likely to go to the theater and actually watch it in real life i know that's my own experience of it i i've watched you know Hamilton on Disney Plus and I thought I really want to go and see that in real life rather than thinking well I've seen it now because you can tell yeah. you can tell the experience is going to be 10 times greater exactly. in in the room I think that's kind of why we've gone back to doing theatre live theatre full stop after the pandemic is that you know it's an age-old thing that the act of sharing something whether that's football or a play or a concert the act of sharing that as a group of people, as a combination of spectators and deliverers, is something that we we thrive on and have always 
had as part of our kind of human societal history and i think we uh of course we're going back to that and of course that's always going to be something that people crave and good you know uh, uh and and now we are all 10 times more grateful for it yeah oh yeah no, theater is definitely here to stay thankfully yeah <laughs> so you're the artistic director at charles court opera can you tell us about your role here and more about the company Sure. So uh, Charles Court Opera was a company that started in uh, 2005 uh, while I was a student. And and it's something that then has kind of gone from strength to strength. Uh, David Eason, who joined as my musical director at that point, uh, and I both really caught a bug for 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 creating new productions and found an outlet to do that in a small pub theatre in uh, Islington called the Rosemary Branch. Uh, and we became very good friends with the lady who 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 owns that, Cecilia Darker, and she really helped us to sort of hone our craft in a way in terms of creating uh, theatre, not just opera, not just Gilbert and Sullivan, but also pantomime that we started producing there, which very quickly went from being um, a two-week run where we cancelled half the performances because nobody was coming to to you know five years later being 30 performances all sold out bursting at the seams and it was clear that that there was something that we were doing right and and so it's really just grown from there and and now of course we're working on on you know collaborations with Holland Park and and tour tour in our own right and uh and have a successful Christmas production every year and I think that you know my my own role is is very much you know as the artistic director I I program the shows I I uh, I cast them in in collaboration with uh, with David and uh, I work with the with designers and and so on to 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 create the productions and 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 often write new material for them um we we're, we're expanding outreach work significantly now um having received a, a legacy award from the concordia foundation and uh that's given us some scope for the next four years to be able to create uh some really uh, interesting education work we're creating some um uh opera uh radio uh programs and we're working on uh, one of our um uh recent musical projects called the man and the moon which basically focuses on ecological matters and re recycling and climate change and so on um and uh yeah it's going from strength to strength and i'm really proud of of how far it's come in time and it really was uh something that was born out of uh, a sort of labor of love and that has very much organically developed over time and uh it's uh i, I feel very privileged to be able to to have that outlet to create work and, and offer other people work and and create another community in which theatre can exist. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. It sounds amazing with the awards and everything. Um, we always ask this uh, from our guests. Could you um, share some advice to young artists starting out in the industry? For anybody starting out in the industry, the hard thing is kind is keeping tabs on your on yourself and and what you think you ought to be doing while also balancing uh 
balancing what you might need to do strategically to get ahead, if you like. And I think that often it's hard to lose sight of yourself and lose sight of what it is that you, you, you do, you're striving to do this for. And I would say be true to yourself while also being realistic with yourself. Um, and be, uh, if, if you can be um, prepared to switch things up, if it feels like it's not quite serving you anymore for whatever reason, then I would heartily recommend that. Um, uh, one great piece of advice I was given once was by a man who uh, I met totally by chance. Uh, I was recording something in North Yorkshire in a church that was quite isolated. And the organisation had arranged for, for someone to just basically pick me up and take me to the station, which was about a 40-minute drive. And this guy was in his 90s, really sweet guy. And the upshot was is that he told me, totally unsolicited really, but he told me a story about his life where he'd started life as um, a, a young man in Europe, didn't speak English, and he and his family uh, emigrated to America. He went to start going to school there and decided he really didn't like learning, uh, like being in education. He didn't want to learn the language, uh, and so because at the time it wasn't really uh, considered, you know, compulsory that he attend school, he 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 left and started working as a courier for a few companies, just taking post around and so on. And his family were quite happy with this because he was bringing in a little bit of extra money, which was really important for them at the time. And he gradually learned English while he was doing this. Um, and to cut ahead significantly, he ended up being a English professor at a prestigious English university and had married, a, 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 likewise, an English professor, and they were living a very comfortable, very successful, very well-paid, very kind of privileged life. And he got into his early 40s, and his wife said things to him such as, you know, I'm really not sure this is actually what you want to do. And he said, well, of course it is. I mean, I I I I came to this from nothing. Uh, I couldn't even speak the language and look at me now. Everybody thinks that I'm good at it. People read my papers that I submit to magazines and so on. Um, the job is well paid. We have such a good life. Well, of course, this is what I want to do. And she said, well, yes, but, but also I, she was saying this about herself, I, when it comes to being asked to write a published paper, get to it immediately and spend half the night up writing the thing because I'm so passionate about it whereas you dodge it as long as you possibly can until it's the 11th hour and then you then you you begrudgingly sit down and start working on that I honestly don't think that being that this this world is your passion and eventually he decided to take a deep breath and take a very brave step which was to extract himself from that completely and he became a harpsichord uh, restorer and maker and tuner and almost overnight he said that his demeanor lifted he was whistling around the house you know his wife was saying you've completely changed by the way told you so and he never did anything else since that's what he's done his entire life and and he's just passionate about being somebody that uses his hands and is and is using a totally different part of his brain and then, you know, as he dropped me off, he said, anyway, so the point is, is that if you ever decide that what you what you do uh, doesn't feel quite right, 
then just be a bit brave about it and see what else there might be out there because it's not worth it. And actually, I think that that's some pretty good advice for anybody who's starting out in theatre. If you get any inkling that it's not quite what you're looking for, then don't be afraid of letting in what other voices might be suggesting there's something else that you might want to do with your time. Uh, because there's nothing worse than feeling that that's that that slightly heavy kind of uh, weight on your shoulders that the thing that you're doing is ultimately quite vocational so you in a way feel like because it's vocational you're going to have to stick with it forever uh and at, at, like you're a nun you know i mean it it really it really can feel like that for a lot of people and you say well of course i'm going to do this forever because it's what i've trained for it's what i've always wanted um i don't know outside of theater and and other similar vocational uh, work environments people change their jobs all the time it's not unusual for someone to say that they used to work in uh, as a primary school teacher and then they became a yoga instructor or or started you know something else that's equally rewarding and brilliant it's not unusual and it's also something that odd but 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 it is something that we're oddly taught i think to see as a as a mark of failure to, to decide to change up that 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 path uh, and I would say don't see it as that if it's not right for you be honest it's okay that's a really good point thank you for that I enjoyed that right. yeah <laughs> good story huh yeah great story yeah <laughs> yeah he's uh, he, uh, it's always stayed with me and it's uh, totally unsolicited so strange but <laughs> I, I got out of the car and went wow okay okay wow. well yeah we, we just did the same thing thanks for sharing that so any exciting projects coming up that you can share with us? Uh, yes, uh, I'm about to perform in the Yeoman of the Guard at the Grange Festival, um, which is going to be really exciting. Chris Luscombe is directing, John Andrews is conducting, and they're both uh, brilliant men, and I can't wait to uh, work with them on it. Um, and then I'm back at uh, Opera Holland Park with our next um, Gilbert and Sullivan collaboration which is on HMS Pinafore this time which is going to be great fun and uh, yeah and then uh, other things I probably uh, shouldn't talk about or as they say I would have to shoot you but uh, the uh, <laughs> there's some really exciting things coming up over the next couple of years both directing and performing wise that I'm uh, really looking forward to getting my teeth into and um, and can't wait oh, perfect I love how it's this time of year that no one can tell us anything and we're interviewing everyone, like, what are you up to? And they're like, I can't say, but I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, well, so that people can keep an eye out for these exciting things, where can people find you online to follow along? Uh, you could go to uh, my website, which is just johnsforland.com, uh, or you could find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and, uh, and on Facebook as well. Perfect. Thanks Perfect. so much for joining us, John. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for um, thanks for asking. Anytime. With the theme of GNS that was going on in that episode, we would love to know from you what is your favorite GNS. So please let us know over on Instagram. You can comment either on the post or. DM us directly, whatever you want. If you were a bit shy, we've already had quite. We've already had quite a lot of votes in. It's quite a popular question. This Ooh. one. Um, but let, before we speak about those, uh, Avi, what's your favourite? So, I have a little bit of a confession. 
I haven't seen that much GNS. And yeah. I can't... This is where me and you differ. I know. <laughs> um, or at least I can't remember seeing that much GNS. Like, I definitely remember having the Pirates of Panzans on VHS. And my mom mm-hmm. loves GNS. Um, so I'm going to have to go with HMS Pinafore because that was the first thing I remember seeing and really, really enjoying. Yeah. Oh, I'm 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 glad you you enjoyed your first live uh, performance of GNS, and I was there to to share that with you. We had such a good time, such a good time at that p- performance. John was amazing, was but also just everyone in that production was amazing. I mean, we've we have got a blog on our on our website about it, and I I wrote that one and just like remember raving about the costumes. They were they and the green old the lady. Green old lady, <laughs> the green. Yes, she will never leave my mind. Um, yeah, cool. What about you? Um, so for me, it's really hard for me to to say a favorite because I do I like a, I like a lot of them. HMS Pinafore is great, but I'm gonna go with the Mikado. Okay, um, and I saw that at E and O pre-pandemic it was when they so they've done it recently and um my singing teacher Yvonne invited me to that she was um performing in it and I went behind stage and saw the costumes and stood oh, wow. on the stage you know and um Richard Richard Stewart was in that as well who's like a the GNS king and um it was just amazing like my favorite thing about that production is the I've got I've got a little list song because whoever does it just changes it and puts in things that are relevant to today um yeah you know it's obviously it often has like a political connotation but just anything that's in the media that you know everyone will know about and you can make a joke about then um it's often put in the song um and I just love it. I love the Mikado. It's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And that's what I love about it. <laughs> I have to see it. Okay. It's yeah. on my list. I have to get through all the GNSs, I feel like. <laughs> Mikado's on her list. Mikado's <laughs> on her list. <laughs> da, 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 da. That's also what I love about GNS. It's just every, every line is just so predictable in the music. <laughs> so it's yeah, easy to remember. Cadence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, fantastic. So it's time for Know It All, and I am delighted to be taking this one this week as a big GNS fan myself. Of course, I'm going to talk about GNS. Um, I'm going to sort of clear up the basics on GNS, um, but I have some really uh, fun facts in here as well. So here we go. Uh, just to clear up that uh, W.S. Gilbert is the librettist. He wrote the words and the composer is Sir Arthur Sullivan, um, who wrote the scores. 14 operas in total and it was a collaboration that lasted 25 years. Um, before the collaboration came about, it I wanted to say that Sullivan um, was a very talented composer and at the age of 14 was the first recipient of Mendelssohn Scholarship uh, at the Royal Academy of Music. Woof, woof. Woof, woof. <laughs> I know that place. Um, for his grad- 
you know we know that place a little bit um so uh, for his graduation he composed a piece called the tempest and he got like overnight success um on that and went on to write symphonies ballets and he wrote an opera himself a one-act comic opera called cox and box as you do i'm not going to give context on that i'm just going to say give it a google cox and box um uh, moving on um <laughs> so um <laughs> the success of the duo um sort of came about from the support that they had from a hotelier composer and theater manager uh richard doily cart um he was a talent agent and loved comic opera and it was his goal to make comic opera uh popular it was very popular in france at the time but not so much in England. So um, he bought a theatre, that being the Savoy Theatre, which I actually didn't know, uh, but John told us about this in in the episode. So the Savoy Theatre was bought and they only uh, staged Gilbert and Sullivan operas on there. Um, And again, as John said, it was like the West End Broadway of the time. So lots of bums on seats. Um, You know, with the GNS stories, how how we've said they're just ridiculous. The storylines are ridiculous, but the um, sort of fantasy storylines were actually influenced by real life events. Really? Now we don't know for sure whether this is true, but the story goes that W. S. Gilbert was two years old when he was kidnapped by Italian bandits. Hear me out. His okay. parents were on holiday in Naples. Uh, and a couple of men approached um, the maid who was looking after the baby, um, baby Gilbert, and demanded the child um, for a small fortune of £25 as parents were able to buy back their son. But obviously that has connotations of storylines in HMS Pinafore, The Gondoliers and Pirates of Penzance. Um, We don't know for sure whether that's just sort of a fable that's that's come through over time, but... If it is true, they, you know, that's a fun fact. That is a fun fact. Now, how, how did the GNS partnership or trio, actually, if you bring in their theatre manager as well, um, how did it all end? Did they retire peacefully, do you think? I'm going to say no. No. Um, they got in a spat over a carpet. <laughs> That did not go the way I thought it was going to. <laughs> so um, there was tensions between Gilbert and Doyle Cart, and uh, it had been brewing for t- some time, but the last straw was when um, Cart um, requested that they spend £500 for new carpets in the Savoy Theatre, and they wanted to take that out with profits um, for the made on the Gondoliers um, show. So Sullivan didn't get himself involved, um, but yeah, it all it all sort of ended over the carpets and the Savoy, so that's a shame. Um, but thankfully, their their productions and uh, operas have lived on despite that. <laughs> I have a question: Have they oh, renovated the carpets since? I don't know. I I would like to think so because this was sort of eighteen ninety, so. <laughs> I would guess. Imagine so, if yeah. it's like uh, 
like a thing now at the Savoy that they can't change the carpet because yeah. of this whole yeah. thing. So there's like, or maybe there's like a patch that's just like, this has <laughs> not been touched. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's my know-it-all. I hope you enjoyed that. I really did. <laughs> oh, I love spats yeah. like that. We ended our massive career over a carpet. Yeah, and I'd just like to, just a little shout out, um, mo- basically most of that information was taken from a lovely article written by uh, English National Opera, um, so do go and, and check out their website. Um, I really like it how they post articles on relating to the operas that they're, they're putting on, so thanks for that, Ian. it for this week's episode thank you so much john for coming to join us we are so glad to have been able to interrogate you and get to know you a bit better indeed um thanks so much for listening everybody as well if you love this podcast then please remember to rate and subscribe to us we also have a new poll at the bottom of every episode on spotify so make sure you answer that uh and make sure you're following us on social media you can find us at aa opera everywhere and you can also support our podcast by joining our patreon which the more the merrier because There's a lot of things we would like to present, but we're not going to start until we have more people on there. So come do check it out. It's patreon.com forward slash AA opera because we really have so many ideas, but we need more of you there to make it happen. Absolutely. So join us over there. We'll see you next week. And we'll see you next week, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.